want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Um, if you're new, we have been studying for some time through this book of Ephesians, and uh, we're going to make our way through here eventually. So we're in chapter 4, and um, as you're turning there, uh, this sort of ask you if you've ever been like me. Have you ever um, thought, man, Jesus knew exactly what to do and say in like every situation. Wouldn't it be sweet if he were here now? Like in the complexity of our world. I mean, think about all of the stories through the Gospels. I mean, this we just heard about this young man. Eli is a pseudonym, by the way. Um, who's read through all the Gospels. Think of all the things that he encountered about Jesus as he read through. Uh, Luke chapter 7, um, yeah, Luke 7 or Matthew 8, those are parallel passages where Jesus heals this centurion servant from afar. Uh, and uh, the centurion didn't even feel worthy to have uh, Jesus come into his house, but knew that Jesus had authority over the sickness. And um, in, that, in that, Jesus demonstrated his power uh, over sickness, but he also demonstrated that acceptance uh, into his kingdom uh, was not bound by cultural barriers, uh, as long as those of uh, other nations have faith in him. I think about in John chapter 4 when Jesus met with the woman at the well, this broken lady whose life had been uh, really, uh, you know, ravaged um, by the men that had come into her life, we can assume. Um, and here she was, you know, very isolated when she meets this man, Jesus, that she'd never, uh, never seen before. And Jesus, in that moment, the well there in Sychar turns it uh, into a moment where her entire village, as well as she, comes to see that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Think of John chapter 3. When he met with Nicodemus, it's, uh, I mean, you can't get more powerful. You know, our country now is talking about a uh, Supreme Court nominee. Nicodemus would have been on the Supreme Court of their day, the Sanhedrin, the 70 most influential men in Israel, Israel at that time. And yet Jesus stripped Nicodemus of any of his religious pedigrees to tell him that he, this wise old man, you can imagine this, this really uh, finely dressed, you know, long beard. Uh, imagine, I mean, what, that's not hard to imagine, right? Uh, and, and Jesus says, you know what? You need to be born again. Jesus knew always what to say and what to do. Uh, think about Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus' own blood family. His mom, brother, came to him wanting seeking an audience. He was inside with his disciples. And they said, the family's outside. They want to speak to you. Jesus takes that moment and says, who are my? Who is my family? My family goes to do the will of my father who's in heaven. Didn't matter what the uh, the audience was, he always seemed to know what to say in order to draw people's attention to the right at that moment. Matthew 
chapter 21 and the following chapters. This is in Jesus' final week before his crucifixion. People, different groups of people were always trying to pin Jesus down, trying to get him stuck on his words or to say something that they could use against him at another time. And uh, he would always answer with a story, sometimes with a direct confrontation, to describe how religion doesn't save. Religion doesn't save, but humble faith in God's promises does. So, I oftentimes think, man, it would be nice to have Jesus here, right? It would be nice to have him here. He'd know exactly what to say. He didn't, he'd know exactly what to say into our turbulent society, 2020 America. What impact would he make? Anybody else felt similar? Man, I wish Jesus was here. <laughs> It's interesting, though, to me, as we think about where we're going in Ephesians 4, that at his last meal, Jesus said to his disciples, we see this in John, it's recorded in John chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, it's actually better that I'm going away. It's better for you that I'm going away. I mean, think about that. Of all the things I just described, and that's just, a, that's just like a snapshot. I mean, John, when he wrote his gospel, he said, I couldn't even write all, if I, wrote, if I tried to write everything that Jesus said and did, literally it would fill libraries. So even just these few examples I wrote are, are a snapshot of the things Jesus did while he was on this earth. And yet... Those are impressive enough to make us say, man, I wish we had Jesus. But Jesus himself said, it is to your advantage that I go away. So it is not better, even though sometimes I wish I could say, man, I wish Jesus was here. He'd really know what to do and say here. It is not better. It would not be better if Jesus was here. And why is that? He tells us in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is in your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And of course, you read on in there, and he's speaking about the promised Holy Spirit that He was going to send after His crucifixion, after His resurrection, after his 40 days of being on this earth, after his resurrection, and after his ascension, on 10 days after he ascended into heaven, 50 days after his resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And that, Jesus said, is the start of something better than him even being here physically. Jesus knows that it is better for us and it is better for the world that he be physically removed so that, listen here, this is basically the point of my whole message, so that God the Son can reign in heaven while God the Spirit extends the boundary of his victory. Let me say that again. It's better that Jesus is physically removed 
so that He can reign in heaven, God the Son can reign in heaven, while God the Spirit here can extend the victory that Jesus accomplished, the boundaries of His victory. Now, we're going to talk about how He does that. We started that two weeks ago, two Sundays ago. We looked at a, I, what I think is a really interesting passage and um, was planning to preach this message last week when I was afraid that I might have gotten COVID. Thank God I tested negative, by the way. I didn't, hadn't told you all that. Um, <laughs> some of you are like, keep the mask on. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm clear. Uh, so we, two weeks ago, we looked at a really interesting passage uh, there in Ephesians, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Uh, and it, what we were looking at is that time in between when Jesus died on the cross and his resurrection. Uh, his activity, uh, we, I believe, is that he descended into Sheol, uh, declared his victory to demonic spirits. We, see, we read about this in 1 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, and then he, uh, he releases those Old Testament, those Old Covenant faith-filled saints from Sheol and leads captivity captive uh, as he comes to his resurrection and then his ascension. He leads captivity captive. Those saints are no longer bound in Sheol, only Sheol now remains as the place of the unrighteous dead, Now, uh, for all of us who are living past that time when Jesus uh, ascended, now when we die, to be absent from the body for us is to be present with the Lord. We go directly into the presence of the Lord, which is far better, Paul tells us. We don't go to that holding place where the Old Testament faith-filled saints were. So this is what was happening, I believe, between the, the, the time of the crucifixion when Jesus cried out, it is finished and gave up his spirit, and when he was resurrected that first Easter Sunday. Now, it says there in Ephesians 4 that his ascension was far above the heavens. Uh, that's to his throne room in heaven, and it's from there that he sent the Holy Spirit, and it is the Spirit that distributes the gifts. And that's what we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, when he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then he quotes Psalm 68. And then he goes, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it, this is this giving of spiritual gifts. Um, so, point of all this, and I, this is all sort of review from last time, is that if you are a Christian... I don't want to assume everyone here is a Christian, but if you are a Christian, if you have repented of your sin and you have trusted Christ for your salvation, you're not trusting in your own self-righteousness, you can't get yourself to heaven, Christ and Christ alone, what He did is sufficient for you to get to heaven. If you're trusting in that alone, then you have received the Holy Spirit, you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, And having been baptized, you've been gifted uh, by the Holy Spirit. You have spiritual gifts. And those gifts are given to each one of his children for the building up of the church. Now, Peter spoke to this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Uh, If you want to hold your finger there in, uh, in, in Ephesians and flip over to 1 Peter, or you can just 
trust that what I'm about to read from you is a direct quote. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 says this, As each of you, or I'm sorry, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now he gives us two categories. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. So Peter, he doesn't take the time like Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 uh, in, in sort of teasing out these spiritual gifts. Peter just puts it in two broad categories. It is the speaking gifts and it is the serving gifts. And, you, and Paul Paul teases that out. You ought to, you ought to look into that. Uh, so here's my question. Do you, believer, know what your gift is? Do you know what your gift is? And if not, do you want to know what it is? Do you want to try to understand what it is? And, and, I, and I believe that the, the gift is not just necessarily one thing. It's sort of like a, a package gift, right? It's one of those gifts. You open up the big box and then inside there's a couple other things in there. I think that we, you know, you may have the gift of mercy and the gift of teaching. You may have uh, the gift of administration and the gift of um, helps. There's, so there, there can be uh, Lord, uh, kind of a package that the Lord has given you uh, in this giftedness. But do you know what it is? Are you, and then are you exercising it, believer, in order to serve to build up the church? This is where we have come from. From two weeks ago. Today we're going to look at this, uh, Ephesians 4, and we're going to look at other gifts that God has given to the church. Uh, There's the gifts that he gives to the individual believer, and then there are the gifts that he gives to the church. We want to also look at what the purpose of those gifts are. Now in the backdrop of all this discussion of gifts, this is God's call through Paul. We see this in the very first verses of Ephesians chapter 4 is that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let's just read those. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he gives that. We've, We've covered those in weeks past. So, in other words exercising of the divine giftedness, I'm sorry, the diverse giftedness that God has, Christ has given to His church with a divine focus to maintain the unity of the Spirit is how we are going to maintain a united and healthy church. I think that's pretty appropriate for where One City Church is these days. In light of some of the things we're going through exercising your diverse giftedness with a divine focus upon God is how we are going to remain united and healthy. So, let's read this passage, and then we're going to go through it. Starting in verse 11. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, what does this victorious king ascending, leading captivity captive, giving gifts to men. What does this victorious king give to the church? He says in verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now there's some dispute as whether these are five or four offices to the church. I tend to think there are four because of the grammar, the grammatical structure of the Greek. I think those last two, pastors and teachers, if you you study in the original language, they're not separated like the other three are from one another. So I think there are four offices, the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, and then the shepherd teachers. So let's look at those just briefly. The apostles and prophets. I believe that these are the first generation church leadership which were still in place in Paul's day when Paul wrote. In chapter 2, verse 20, uh, we read this, that the church is built, the church is the temple, verse 20 of chapter 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Uh, the, the apostles and prophets' uh, role in the church was to establish the foundation of the church upon which the church would be built on, and the foundation, the cornerstone which gave shape to the entire building was Jesus Christ. So uh, an apostle or a prophet would be judged in their day based upon whether they were rightly communicating Jesus Christ. That's important because there were people in the first century who claimed to be apostles and prophets who were not rightly communicating about Jesus Christ and they were deemed false apostles and false prophets. Now, a little bit of a side, but I think it's pretty important, is that in the modern church has gotten really into some messy places Uh, by not being careful with these two offices, apostles and prophets. Even in this city, there are churches that claim to have apostles and prophets leading them. And I think that is very dangerous because it it, uh, consolidates an authority and 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 a power which I believe was reserved for the first century that put down the foundation of the faith that would extend throughout the generations. And so I don't think these men, there may be ladies too, 
who claim to be apostles and prophets, giving themselves the title, how they got that. Uh, I don't think that's legitimate. And this is, I, let, me, let me say, and I realize you get into messy water here, and I'm willing to wade into it. I have been blessed in charismatic circles. I have been. I have been blessed in, by numerous friends who uh, are in charismatic circles. I, when we were missionaries, we were supported by charismatic churches. Uh, who would reject this idea of apostles and prophets, by the way? But it seems to be that in charismatic circles is where these modern-day apostles and modern-day prophets seem to uh, land. Um, and it's inappropriate because they use this authority for their ministry uh, in ways that is not uh, given, I think, by the Word of God. Now, ben, this is just an illustration. Benjamin, my son Benjamin and I, just a, couple, a week or two ago, we were watching on TV and we were scrolling through some of these religious channels on uh, our, te- our television cable. And uh, we got into this and it said, Prophet so-and-so. And we just started watching him. I wanted to sit there with my son because I wanted to disciple him and I wanted him to see the silliness of this. And I'm sorry, this can be offensive, but it was literally nonsense. This guy, we watched for an hour, he did not open the Bible, he did not quote the Bible, he was literally blabbering into the camera, uh, essentially fundraising, with very particular amounts of money. If you send $56.17, the Spirit tells me that you're going to have a release. He was calling people to release their faith. He was using manipulation tactics saying, but there is someone here who's got a son in prison, and if you send double that, if you send $114 in so many cents, your son is going to get out, and this is manipulation of the worst kind. I believe those people will be judged, but what is worse than them being judged is that genuine Christians are duped. They are duped. They're false prophets and they're false apostles. Those two offices were reserved for the first century foundation of the church. 2 Peter chapter 1 and 2 talks about even in the first century, that the way you find the prophetic is through the prophecy of Scripture. No prophecy of Scripture. That's the reason we study the Word. If you want to know about the apostles and the prophets, you read the doctrine of the apostles. You read the words of the prophets. You don't have to have a modern-day prophet. Second. Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, Paul talks about false apostles, deceitful workers who masquerade as apostles of Christ. It happened in the first century. Why wouldn't it happen today? We have to be careful. How do you, how do you discern? They've got to line up with the Word of God. That's the only way. Because the foundation has been delivered us once for all. The faith has been delivered once for all to the saints. And we study this Word so we can detect any masquerading that goes on. The only way to avoid their traps is by knowing the Gospel and the Scriptures. 
So that's the apostles and the prophets. What about the evangelists? These are the ones, and I believe that the evangelists and the shepherd teachers are the offices that are reserved for today. The evangelists are the ones who are called and gifted uh, to share the good news. That's what their their title means. The, the The good messengers. They're the ones who share the good news to the lost. They're the ones who train the saints to know how to share the good news. Because there's a world of people that need the Gospel. There's a lot of people who need the Gospel. And then the shepherd teachers, uh, and I believe that, like I said, this is one office. It's other times uh, referred to as pastor or elder. The purpose of this office is to guide and protect and to instruct. So those are the gifts we see in verse 11 that Jesus has given to the church. Two, why does He give them to the church? This is important. Ephesians 4, why does He give them to the church? Well, He tells us in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, it's often been noticed, and we've noted, and we've said it in this church many times, that the saints, which literally means holy ones, is Paul's most common reference to Christians. The saints. You are the holy ones. If you know Jesus and if you have trusted Jesus, you have received something called the imputed righteousness of Christ. And I realize this is big, but you are holy. I grew up in a faith that you had to be dead for a certain amount of time and then recognized and canonized by the church hierarchical structure in order to be a saint. And I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. You're a holy one because Jesus, what He did on the cross for you, is that effective. It's not because you guys are awesome. It's not because I'm awesome. It's because Jesus is awesome and His salvation is stinking awesome. And we've got to be okay with acknowledging that we are saints. We sometimes say, well, I'm a saint. You know, I don't really act like a saint. You know, we kind of... We know you don't act like a saint. Jesus made his saints anyways. And it is the saints here that are to do the work of the ministry. I've said this many times. Great church historian Kenneth Scott Latterett said this, the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity in the early years appear not to have been those who made it a profession or a major part of their occupation, it's me. The chief agent was in me. People who do what I do. Latterette says, but men and women who earned their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those whom they met in the very natural fashion. That's who turned the world up on its head. Just normal saints loving Jesus in the real world. I get really frustrated when I hear people say, well, we're just going to bring our friends to to church so you can tell them about Jesus. You know what your friends are going to think? He's paid to say that. That's exactly what they're going to think. I've heard them say that to, to me. You're paid to say that. You're paid to think that. But you're not. And then you tell them, and you share the word with them. That's what can change the world. The work of the evangelist and the pastor teacher is to equip 
the saint for the work of ministry. And this word for equip is the word katarizo, uh, katartizo, I'm sorry, which means to adjust, to make complete, to mature, to perfect. Sometimes it's talking about the mending of nets, right? It's used, that word, that same word, katartizo, is used in the mending of fishing nets. But it's to make complete or to mature. Hebrew, just to give you an example of how this same word is used, it'll give you an idea of what it means in Ephesians 4. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, 21 says, the author prays that God would equip you with everything good that you may do His will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul prays that he could see them face to face, and here's the word, supply what is lacking in their faith. Hmm, I wonder what that might entail. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, uh, it says, To help those who are caught in sin, you who are spiritual should, here's the word, restore the sinner, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's that word, katartizo, to equip. And so, it's, it's, it's my job to equip you but it's your job to equip the, 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 the straying sinner, to draw them back, to complete them, to mature them, to do whatever it needs in their life in order to bring them back to Jesus. Now, I'm going to admit that this is a tall order, right? My job is to equip you all for the work of the ministry. It requires me knowing you, which is increasingly difficult in such a busy world. But it's also difficult because there are so many different issues that we face. And like, how do I become an expert in all of these in order to equip you? The complexity of our modern society, being interconnected and also overloaded with information, honestly creates an unlimited number of of combinations of things that God's people must interact with. So, in order for me to equip you, must I become an expert in all the possible combinations? Thank God the answer, for me and you, the answer is no. Why? Verse 13. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until, look what the goal is, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul describes the end result of the leader's job of equipping in three ways. First is that we would be united in faith and knowledge of the Son of God. That's number one. United in faith and in, our, in the knowledge of the Son of God. Second way he describes it is by becoming a mature man, which we're going to see in a moment is in contrast to children who are tossed to and fro. The third way he describes it is that, the, is that we are to grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I believe all... Three of these are different ways of describing essentially the same thing. The church is to grow, and when I say the church, I mean the church universal, but I'm mostly concerned here with one city church. 
The church is to grow in the experience of Jesus through united understanding of truth. That's why we teach the Bible. We are to grow to experience Jesus. So it's not just enough to being able to answer the right questions on a test. Is that the knowledge of the truth needs to drive you to, G- to the experience of Jesus. Remember, in John chapter 5, Jesus condemned the Pharisees. He says, you search the Scriptures day and night, thinking that in them you have eternal life, but you won't come to me But I'm sorry, but they are they, those are they that speak of me, meaning the scriptures Jesus was saying speak about him, but you won't come to me that you might have life. The scriptures and our understanding are to drive us to a personal devotion and relationship with Jesus. So that's the first thing. The church is also to grow in wisdom and away from gullibility. There are so many things trying to get the church to focus on. And I think sometimes we are so gullible and we chase after these things and we, we forget the main thing because we're trying to tease out and try to figure out these other minor things. And then the third one is the church is to grow to more fully represent Jesus in the world. All Christians are at different places on this spectrum, which is why we need Christians speaking into one another's lives. You need to have other Christians in your life that are speaking into your life and whom you're speaking into theirs. Some need to grow in the area of biblical knowledge. Some need to transition from knowledge to experience, but we all need to continue to grow into the fullness of Christ. There's no end, right? If the end goal is to grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, like how, how, how are you going to know? <laughs> like we're not going to get there, but that's the direction. So that points us in the right direction, But we don't get discouraged if we're not there yet because we'll never be there yet. Thank God we get to go to heaven. And everything that's holding us back now will be done away with. So what's that going to look like, Paul? Wow. All right. Well, I'm I'm, I'm getting close. What's it going to look like? Well, let's look at it from the negative and from the positive. First, from the negative. What it will not look like. Verse 14. When we reach the measure of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Right? Have you ever been with a little kid to the ocean? Right? I mean, you, you and I, and waves don't do much to me unless they're really big, right? But man, when I go in, with Savannah, I'm holding her hand. You know, you go, you go to Jones Beach in New York or you go to uh, Ocean City, New Jersey or something, you got that undertow, man, she's going to get tossed to and fro by those waves because she's a child. Well, we don't want to be like that as Christians. And, the, and, 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 he's, and he's saying that this is, has to do with doctrine. There are deceitful people. Look at this. There are deceitful people intentionally trying to deceive us who are under the leadership, by the way, of the father of lies who, who are seeking to mislead. John 8, 44, Jesus says, speaking to the religious people of his day, he says, you're a liar. You guys are liars. You're like your father who lies all the time. 
because the devil has been lying from the beginning. He is the father of lies. So there are going to be religious people who are seeking to deceive us. How do we stand up against them? You've got to know doctrine. That's what it says. That we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried away by every wind of doctrine. We need to know good doctrine. Evangelists and pastor teachers must teach doctrine to the saints. This is a critical role of what we do. And honestly, it concerns me when I hear of Christians that would prefer not to go to a doctrinal church that focuses on doctrine. Honestly, we may not grow big, but I want to make sure that as much as I can, that we all are not knocked over by the winds of doctrine that come around. It's one of the reasons in kids' ministry that they're studying doctrine. They're studying doctrine. The Gospel Project is doctrine for kids. Every week in the email we send you the New City Catechism. I hope you'll read that. Uh, It's about doctrine. It's 52 weeks. We're on week 40. Uh, How should we pray? You can go to the email you got this morning. You can click on it. That's doctrine. So that's the negative side. What it shouldn't look like. What it's going to look like when, as we're growing into the fullness of Christ. But uh, that's what it should not look like. But what about from the positive? What will it look like, Paul? Well, that's what verse 15 and 16 are. Rather, meaning this is a contrast, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, I'm coming back to that, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's what I think because of this idea of the equipping. I think, follow my train of thought, I'm sort of taking, I'm taking a step back from the minutiae of this to try to get a big picture. Evangelists and pastor teachers' job is to equip the saints. The equipping of the saints involves the teaching of doctrine so that you all are uh, able to do the work of ministry. Um, uh, and, that, uh, and so that is the equipping has to do with doctrine. Equip, you know good doctrine, you're going to be able to parse out the individual contextual, the corners and the contours of how you have to live out your faith in your world if you know good doctrine, I believe. Um, but that, uh, I believe that doctrine is the equipping, and so you take it over to here. I believe that the joints in the body of Christ that Paul is talking about here in verse 16 are, is the doctrine that we are equipped with. The joints are the good doctrine. They provide and guide the movement of the body. Can you imagine if you didn't have these joints and you couldn't do this? You'd be like... You just couldn't do anything. Everything would be so stiff. But the doctrine, the joints, allows the body to move and to adapt into unique situations. And that's what we're here to equip you with. Knowing doctrine, the saints are able to speak to one another in a loving way. Sometimes that truth is hard to hear. When you speak the truth in love, sometimes it stings, but it's okay. We want to be told the truth. Because the purpose of speaking the truth in love is so that we would grow into who? 
Christ. Sometimes the truth is sharing doctrine, and as we're going to see the next time, sometimes sharing the truth has to do with how we live our lives, and that's where Ephesians 4 begins to get into the areas of living how we live out our lives. As we've said before, doctrine is to guide good living. There are a lot of moral people, hear me, there are a lot of moral good people who wind up in hell. Impeccable character. But because they never knew Christian, the Christian doctrine that rejects self-righteousness and requires the atoning work of Jesus Christ, they go to their grave thinking that they can save themselves. Good moral people. So the good living that we want to live out has to be driven by good believing, good doctrine. Let me conclude with that, with this. Christ is not here physically. To comfort the afflicted, and he's not here physically to frustrate the proud. But what we have is better. We have the church, the body of Christ, empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit, ministering to one another and to the world in so many different places that if Jesus were here stuck in one place in one time, the gospel would not have advanced as far as it has. So the Spirit comes in, and as the body of Christ, no, we are not where Jesus uh, was. We don't hold the impeccable character that He was, but we're moving in that direction. We're moving towards being the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And, and my job is to help to equip you to get there. Your job is to minister to one another and to minister to a lost world that needs Jesus. And in the end... What do we see? We see believers in Afghanistan. We see believers in Burma. We see believers in the inner cities of, our, of the United States. We see believers in these uh, small towns in the United States. We see believers on the highest mountains in Tibet. We see believers all in the South American countries. We see believers all through Sub-Saharan Africa. We see the church of Jesus Christ expanding like it was revealed in the book of Daniel, like a mountain that fills the entire world, crushing everything in its path, and it will never fade away. That's because our victorious King, when He rose from the dead, He led captivity captive and ascended on high, gave gifts to men through the giving of the Holy Spirit and the spiritual giftedness. Now, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? Let's do what we are called to do and go reach the world. I'm going to pray. We're going to stand. We're going to sing the church's one foundation, and then Luke's going to come and close us with a benediction. All right, why don't you stand as we pray. Father, we just thank you for the truth of your victory.